Podcast 53, Toby Hemingway on Native Plants. Sponsored by my buddies at PantryParatus.com. They sell food preservation tools. Produce, prepare, preserve your own harvest. So here we are with Toby Hemingway. We're eating lunch, and um, this will be the last thing we do because we have to we have to head out and head back to Missoula. And Toby has to get on with his life and his uh, his, his wife. Thanks for stopping my life. <laughs> I was glad to stop your life. There we go. <laughs> and and uh, uh, everything will resume, and you'll get back to writing your book on on patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but so the last podcast we thought a great topic would be to talk about native plants. And um, um, basically, my impression, Toby, is that you love native plants. You are a powerful, powerful advocate. In fact, at one point, you were a very militant activist of nothing but natives, and you've just added a little bit to that overall plan. Right. We start with natives, and uh, if the natives can't do the job for us, we bring in other things that you know, that are tested that we know are not going to be a problem. And you should pretty much never need to bring in a plant that is either known to be rampant or that is unknown with all the all the choices of plants that we have, we don't need to go to um, plants that that, are, that we don't know anything about. <clears throat> but I did have, so I'm constantly being shown how exercised people get about native plants. I used to myself. I had a list of horrible exotics, you know, invasive plants that I would uproot anytime I encountered them. So good luck with that. And uh, but I just Gaia's Garden just received its first one-star review on Amazon from someone who um, said great book, but a horrible flaw um, was the the heading on it. And he said I thought I was going to love this book, but I was gut wrenched. He said by encountering the most hideous invasive species on the planet being recommended by this book. And so what he had done was go through his friend's copies of Gaia's Garden, putting a red dot next to any invasive species that I happened to mention. And I I realized in reading this that he obviously had either not read, not understood, or just chosen to ignore the section in Gaia's Garden on where I talked about the natives versus exotics debate and and explain. We use native plants first. That's where we start. And if the native won't do the job, we try try something else. Often the native might not do the job. What did you have for breakfast? Probably was not a native plant. So it's just kind of fun to see here's someone who is very much where where I was um, many years ago as a natives-only enthusiast, not realizing that if you want to take care of your own needs, uh, you need to plant things other than natives. You're probably, what did you have for breakfast? You probably had oatmeal or uh, something that's that's not a native plant. So So, um, my my question at the moment is, is how does it feel to be wrenching the guts of dipshits? (laughs) I'm I'm happy. If I can get a response like that, at least, well, I maybe haven't made this person think, but but wrenching wrenching the guts of someone um, by by saying something outrageous to them is is always great fun. Although um, it's a little strange to to be told that it's outrageous to tell someone to plant something that's going to build soil.
soil, uh, take care of their own needs, attract beneficial insects, um, how, how can that be an outrageous thing? And, and feed them. And feed them as well. Yeah, exactly. I, somehow I find great pleasure in dipshits getting really upset over the things that I have to say. And, um, and so, so it seems like good people, people I like, seem to really appreciate things that I have to say, and they're, they want to hear more of it. And then these crazy lunatics get all, you know, they, 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 they damn near pop, and somehow I have to point and laugh. And so I feel like I've made the world a better place by doing the gut-wrenching. But anyway, so, so I, I, it seemed to me like when you were first telling me about this, you seemed a little pained that somebody was upset, and I want to kind of alleviate some of that pain, and uh, uh, I'm not sure if I'm helping or not. Well, you know, an author never likes to see a one-star review on their book on Amazon, but then when I read the rest of the review, it was just, okay, this is someone who I just triggered, and uh, it, it was wonderful. Someone had already responded to the review saying, gut-wrenched, stop being such a drama queen and actually review the book. So other, obviously other people feel the way that, that I do. But it, it's a hot topic. People get really exercised over natives and exotics and all of that. Um, but I would just remind you, you know, what did you have for breakfast? Because as Michael Pollan says, you know, we're voting with our forks. What we choose to eat is what's going to be planted. So um, <clears throat> uh, I, I reviewed your book. Did you see my review out there on Amazon? I did. It was a wonderful review, and it's ranked somewhere up in the top couple of reviews of the book um, in terms of people finding it useful. So thank you very much. And uh, obviously, if anybody out there wants to favorably review Guy's Garden, please please go ahead and do that. Um, if you want to unfavorably review it, um, go you know write it and put it into your pillow. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should stop by the strip club instead. You know. <laughs> there you go. Better use of your time. <laughs> I mean, I'm guessing if they don't like your book, what are they into? You know, what's, what's their thing that the, so I don't, yeah. Well, anyway, I, I think that it's, it's uh, your book is, from my understanding, the number one seller of all permaculture books. It is. It's been the best-selling permaculture book in the world for about the last seven years, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. So thanks, thanks, for, thanks for buying my book. I really appreciate it. So I, I believe one time you told me that if you're ever having a day where you feel a little low, you go to... Yeah, I, I, if I'm feeling bad, I can go to Amazon and read some of the reviews of the book, and it just you know makes me feel like, okay, my stay on this planet has actually been worthwhile, so that, that helps a lot. Um, although these days I try not to worry about what other people think. I'm just trying to go ahead and do what I, what I want to do and what I think is right. So if we pay less attention to what other people think and just do the things we believe in, I think we'll all be a lot better off. See, I think I should follow your path, because if you write a book, you hardly ever hear from anybody, but then if you go out and you put something on the internet, then there's always this reply button on everything you ever say, and, and I hear, I think I probably hear from a few more crazy people than you do, but you know what, this podcast should really be, as fun as it is to talk about crazy people and wrenching the guts of crazy people, uh, I, I, I think we're supposed to be talking about natives, and, and, uh, uh, and I think that some of the things you've said about natives have been uh, really powerful. In fact, uh, before I forget, I seem to recall that a few years ago, there was some sort of gathering between the native camp and the permaculture camp because there was a, a bit of a division there, even though it doesn't make sense that there would be. There, there had been. And, um, and you were there, and I'm not sure who else turned up and how, but, but I, I heard a rumor that it all worked out great and you were at the apex of it being great. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that, but yeah, we, we had uh, at Lost Valley Educational Center outside 
out of Eugene, Oregon. Some folks convened a, uh, a gathering of native plant enthusiasts and permaculture enthusiasts um, and folks who, who fit in both categories. And it was, it was a really good gathering because we found, the, you know, we really established a huge amount of common ground between us. We're all plant lovers. We all want to reduce human being ecological footprint on the planet. We just have a little bit of differences as to how that, how we'd want to do that. And I think it really helped us all find that we weren't that far apart. But I did give a little talk. It's an article on my website on patternliteracy.com about planting to an idea that the idea that human beings know what is the best plant to go in a particular place is an incredible piece of arrogance. That when we decide that these plants are native to these plants, these are the right plants to go here, these are the ones that we want to see here, uh, I think na nature has a lot more wisdom than we do in its choices to plant something. And often when a plant is in a particular place, it's there to do a job. It may be a plant that we don't like. Um, for example, purple loosestrife is a poster child of the, uh, the invasive species people who talk about how evil and ugly and horrible pur purple loosestrife is. When you see purple loosestrife somewhere, it's, well, there are two things going on. One is it's been documented that purple loosestrife attracts just as many native pollinators as the surrounding native vegetation, that it's very good at attracting native pollinators. Also, why would purple loosestrife be there? I think that's a question we have to ask when we see an exotic plant. And one of the things purple loosestrife is doing is that it, it cleans up pollution. It's very good at picking pollutants out of water and breaking them down and cleaning them up. So part of the reason purple loosestrife is somewhere is because the water is polluted. And the purple loosestrife can not only survive better in the polluted water than the native plants that used to be there, but it's cleaning up the pollution. So if we're yanking the purple loosestrife, we're just treating the symptom. If you don't want purple loosestrife in your waterways, then clean the water up and it'll go away on its own. But they're not evil plants. They're there to do a job, and very often they're not doing anywhere near the harm that we thought they were. There's a growing body of scientific literature now showing that many of our assumptions about exotic species, about invasive species, turn out not to be true. Purple loosestrife is great at attracting native pollinators. Salt cedar or tamarisk turns out not to be the water thief that we assumed it was when we started finding it in our riparian areas and on and on. But there are definitely some exotic plants that are problems in certain places. Uh, kudzu in the south, yeah, it's a shade tolerant nitrogen fixer, but it's largely there because the soils in the south have been so impoverished. They've been ruined by a couple of centuries of heavy-duty farming and extraction of nutrients. The kudzu is there to help repair the soil. If we repair the soil, the kudzu dies back. So an, an invasive species is a symptom of a problem, and it's not the problem itself. So if we treat the problem rather than the symptom, if you just yank a native, an exotic species, an invasive species, so-called invasive species, it's just going to come back until you treat the problem itself. So we can learn a lot from the invasive species that would be so-called invasive species that we see because they're telling us that there's a problem that needs to be dealt with. And they're very often nature's solution to that problem. And we're ignoring that great piece of wisdom when we just blindly yank them out. On kudzu, I, I know we've had long conversations about it on permies.com, and it does seem to me like, okay, it's edible for people. It's edible for livestock. Right. And um, the only places where it seems to be getting out of control is where they're trying to, they're doing utterly nothing with the land. It's it's sitting there, and there's there's no people there. There's no nothing there. And the, the plant is coming in, and as you say, healing the land. That land is messed up. It is 
is it is uh, um, just dirt, just plain dirt. What did you think was going to happen if you just have plain dirt sitting around? So in comes the kudzu to kind of heal it. And then um, uh, I've seen pictures of it where it grew over vehicles and stuff that were what parked in the same place for the last well, six years. Plant to grow over it, yeah. So clearly it's not being used. I mean, it does it does grow into forests, you know, into the forest margins. But it's there because the soil has been really impoverished. Just there is a response to abused land. And if we just go in and try and yank it out, it's it's trying. It's a nitrogen fixer. It's trying to build the soil back up. So we're setting back that process of land healing when when we yank plants like that. We should be listening to the message that they're giving. You know, Russian olive, autumn olive, um, invasive species, but they're nitrogen fixers that are there most of the time. They come into abused, formerly abused farmland and are there to try and build the soil back up. It's a response to a problem and not the problem itself. Before I forget, one of the things that I remember you teaching me a long time ago, <clears throat> um, when I very first heard your name and was reading your book, and, 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 I, and I argued with you online about, well, your book doesn't say that. What the hell? And and so, uh, uh, but that uh, black locust shares nitrogen with other plants. Honey locust does not. Right. Honey locust is not a nitrogen fixer, um, as far as they know. They haven't seen no jewels on it. Black locust is a nitrogen fixer, and like most nitrogen fixers, it releases a fair amount of nitrogen into the soil over the lifetime of the plant. Great thing about a lot of nitrogen fixers is that they're constantly, the, the nitrogen fixing nodules on them are constantly dying as roots grow and roots die. So they're constantly releasing some amounts of nitrogen. Um, it could be more, it could be less, but nitrogen fixers are sharing their nitrogen with the, with the other plants the whole time that they're growing. They've done nitrogen labeling experiments to show that they do exactly that. So honey locust is a legume that is not a nitrogen fixer. That's right. It's generally, the, I, I have never seen evidence of nodules on it, and I've heard from really reliable sources that it doesn't demonstrably fix nitrogen, even though it's a leguminous plant. Okay, that's the first I've ever heard of that, and and if it was coming from anybody else, I'd have to kick them in the nuts. So, uh, I knew that. Mine are already sore. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we have spent our day today, apparently. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> but I got it. I got to I gotta save my say the way I say it so but I, I think uh, I think the next thing is oh, did you have something to say Caleb? Oh, because Mollison used honey locusts quite a bit didn't he? That's true the, the famous story of the town in Australia that hates his guts it, uh, now my understanding of the story and Toby would probably be far no you're not sure so my, here's, here's how I recall the story there's a town in Australia that's turning into a ghost town everybody's moving out half the places are closed, whatever else, and it's it's just a desert. It's just out in the middle of a big deserty desert, desert, void, desert thing. And so uh, Bill Mollison comes in and does permaculture to introduce jungleage to this deserty spot, and um, he plants thornless honey locusts, and um, uh, which have no thorns, thornless honey locusts, and he brings back this green lushness, and the town comes comes back to life and everybody moves there and now their population is thriving and don't eat all the pie because I want some of that pie.
pie. <laughs> that looks really good. I need to go wash my bowl so I can have some cherry pie. Oh, right. I was talking about locusts. So anyway, uh, uh, then, then the, the, they're, they're very happy to have all this green lushness, which seems to have appeared out of nowhere. They forgot whoever that weird hippie guy was that was here doing that uh, or saying he was doing it, because obviously nature did this. It wasn't some crazy hippie. Um, and uh, <clears throat> then it's like a lot of these things have nasty thorns. Well, it turns out that when the seed drops from a honey locust, aren't you glad I'm talking about this, giving you a chance to finish your meal? <laughs> you all. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome, Toby. I'm, I'm doing this for you. <laughs> so uh, uh, the seeds will be uh, not necessarily true to the parent. They'll be a little bit like grandma and grandpa and, um, and maybe whoever daddy was. Um, and, uh, and those kids, some of them are thornless, but most of them have thorns. And next thing you know, there's honey locusts everywhere with thorns. Now, a, a thorn on a honey locust is an amazing thing. I, I, I love having a little sprig of uh, honey locust with the thorns. It just shows the power of nature. But um, farmers used to use the thorns of honey locusts because they're like three inches long and very hard. They used to use the thorns of the honey locust as nails to build their barns. Because, you know, nails, they would cost money, but those, uh, those honey locust thorns are, were easy to come by. <clears throat> uh, they also knew never drive the tractor anywhere near the honey locust tree because it will puncture your tractor tires. Um, so amazing, beautiful thorns, you know, when you're into that kind of thing. And if at the moment you're not into that kind of thing, there. So anyway, that community is now paying something like $100,000 to try and get rid of all of the honey locust trees. And they hate that Bill Mollison fucker for putting those there. So now instead of being known as the guy who brought the town back to life and brought all this green lushness to the town, he's that bastard that planted those stupid honey locust trees that are just everywhere and pokey and stabby and stuff. So, but hey, Toby, have you heard this story before? I have not heard that story before. It's an awesome fucking story, isn't it? Great story. <laughs> it is. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> Unintended consequences. It happens. It happens. Some of this awesomeness comes at a price, you know, more than giving $20 to some hippie. So the lesson for me is if Bill Mollison, guru, unbelievable guy that he is, can make that kind of mistake, it's okay if you make the occasional mistake, too. I agree with that. We get to we get to make mistakes, but at the same time, he made a mistake, and he made he made uh, for for every pound of mistake, there was a hundred pounds of awesome. Exactly. Now the mistake was was a pretty minor part of bringing this whole town back. So, um, all right. Well, we were we were talking about. Oh, we got more treats too. We got some chocolate. Free chocolate. No. Oh, it's Theo's. Oh, the 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 good stuff. Ah. I'm gonna eat the cherry pie first. So maybe the honey locust was more for the biomass than the nitrogen. And as a shade tree, just just to yeah, just to get something that grows in there. Yeah, honey locust does do good in really awful soils. Um, and up until this moment, I'd always thought it was a nitrogen fixing tree. Maybe it somehow can come up with some nitrogen. Maybe 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 its nodules are so tiny no one can see them. Mm, 
Don't know. Those, those guys have microscopes. <laughs> pretty small nodules. So maybe there's a maybe it's a doing the noduley thing, but without nodules. It may be doing something with just beneficial organisms in the soil. Don't know. Not not willing to speculate. Haven't haven't seen any data. Okay. Well, so black locust, on the other hand, is a real champion as a permaculture plant. Yep, it is. The again, the thing you need to worry about watch out for with black locusts is that it puts up a lot of suckers, so if you plant one, if the trunk is damaged at all, or if you chop around in the soil around it, it'll start to sucker. So once you've got one, you're going to have it there for a long time, but it's a great nitrogen fixer, and the uh, the wood has preservatives, natural preservatives in it, so there's the old story of making a fence post out of a piece of black locust, sticking it in the ground for 30 years, and then when the bottom, when one end starts to rot, you just pull it out and put the other end in the ground for another 30 years. So uh, farmers used to call it stone wood uh, because they say it lasted longer than stones. Now earlier today you were mentioning that uh, mentioning that uh, comfrey would be the uh, what did you say the permaculture queen is that right. right? Queen of the permaculture plants, queen of the multifunctional plants is comfrey. And then I asked you what would be king, and I was sure you were going to say black locust. But I thought about black locust for a minute, but I think in terms of sheer multifunctionality, you've got to give the award to bamboo. It has uh, at least 2,000 known uses, and uh, it's, besides being edible and a great timber plant or whatever you want to use it for, fishing poles, everything, um, it's, it grows very easily. People talk about, they're worried about bamboo will take over, uh, and it can definitely grow rampantly, but... In the at least in the arid west, if we just don't irrigate around it, it doesn't get out of control, and you could put bamboo barriers around it. But really, the thing about bamboo is that it's meant to have a relationship with human beings. In Asia, part of the reason bamboo doesn't get out of control, it doesn't take over, because people harvest it and they eat the shoots, and that keeps it under control. Uh, we Americans, we just like to plant something and then not have a relationship with it and just kind of watch it. Bamboo isn't that sort of a plant. Bamboo is a plant you have to have a relationship with um, or it's good to have a relationship with it. It's, it likes human beings and human beings like it. So if you're just into planting something and then never touching it again and not even thinking about it, bamboo is not the plant for you um, in general. But it's great to have a relationship with it because it has so many functions. So it's a plant that we can use, and that's how we keep it in control. <clears throat> so here we are at a typical permaculture kind of gathering, and everybody's brought a little bit of food. Toby, I believe you brought this pie. Uh, yes, there the Fishtail Montana General Store. There are local ladies in Fishtail who bake for the general store, and these guys crank out great pies. So I'm going to help myself to a piece of cherry. Oh, it's good. Oh, it's yeah. so good. Any cold weather bamboo plants that you know for zone four and five? Uh, I'm not a bamboo expert, so I'm, I'm, I know that there's some for zone five. I don't know about colder than that. All right, so um, the, uh, when we turned this contraption on, we thought we were going to be talking about native stuff. So there are two things that um, I'm, I'm regular. Whenever I'm presenting, I seem to bring up that uh, I echo from your works. Or actually one that I've echoed. And then there's another one that's now my, my favorite thing to echo, which I haven't yet had a chance to echo. Um, that I just rediscovered by uh, reviewing your book. But the, the one I've echoed many times is, is when we talk about native plants, uh, there's native to win. 
and then the other thing that we've talked about was, our, our, which is, uh, I guess there's three things. Uh, the other thing I talk about is like, well, what do you eat? Uh, and I think you covered that a little bit earlier. Um, but the new thing that I think is better than those two combined is the whole thing of like, if you do a, a native uh, garden, like if you've got a quarter of an acre in town and you've decided to dedicate it to native stuff, that um, now some sort of wildlife has to be destroyed in order to feed you. Right. I mean, I love the idea of people planting native plants completely. You want to have a yard full of natives if you live in the cities or suburbs. That's great. Certainly would rather have you do that than plant a lawn. But the idea that you are somehow um, saving biodiversity or saving species by planting natives in your city or suburban yard is it's just it's not true you're almost unless you've really done a lot of homework and found either endangered species of natives to plant or you have found a native species that supports a particular specialist pollinator that's endangered you're just planting the same old native plants that everybody else has got in their backyard and they're probably extremely common native plants as a general rule that's what I've seen so your yard also is disconnected from the ecosystem at large, if, if, particularly if you're in a city, but even in a suburb, you'll have a little patch and the neighbors around you are going to have lawns. You're not going to get endangered species living in your yard um, very rarely unless you really specifically do your homework and create exactly the habitat for that specific endangered species. So I think you're kind of fooling yourself thinking that you're actually helping the environment by planting native plants. You're planting commonly grown natives, none of which are endangered in general. Um, what I would rather see you do is take care of some of your own needs from within your yard, because if you can reduce your consumption in your own yard, if you can grow a little bit of your own food or provide otherwise for some of your own needs, that means that a piece of farmland out in what was once truly wild land could have the pressure taken off of it. That somewhere a farmer isn't going to have to plow quite so close to a riparian area, that there'll be a little shrinkage of acreage instead of that acreage that's got your name on it because that farmer is growing stuff for you. The farmer won't have to plant as much. That, that you'll be able to reduce your footprint by taking care of more of your needs from within your own yard, thus allowing a piece of land somewhere else to grow truly wild. If you're planting natives in your yard and you're eating cornflakes or oatmeal for breakfast, you're commissioning the destruction of, of land and turning it into farmland somewhere else. It's kind of a NIMBY approach. It's, hey, it's not happening in my backyard. It's out of sight of me, but that farmer probably isn't using practices that you would approve of. You probably would be a lot better at growing those plants yourself. Um, odds are, because you can control it. You know what's going on. You can see and do it exactly the way you'd like to have it done rather than trusting somewhere else, somewhere out of sight to be growing stuff for you. So taking care of your own needs in your own yard, to me, is the greatest thing you can do to preserve planetary biodiversity. Um, I think you're kind of kidding yourself that planting you know, a few hundred square feet of natives um, is actually going to connect your yard to the larger ecosystem. It's a great thing to do, better than growing grass, um, but I think the very highest use of a yard would be to pr produce things for your own use so that your ecological footprint otherwise shrinks. All right, that's a great thought.
from her live studio audience. Woo! <laughs> Damn, that was good, Toby. Um, so let's see, did we cover the one about the, uh, oh, what do you eat? So like people that are saying, because I've had people, when I, when I talk about, I'm doing permaculture, and I'm going to go out to this land, and I'm going to do the permaculture thing. And then I've had people tell me that, well, then, you know, you can't do that. That's wrong. You need to plant all native stuff. And then my, my first question is, is um, well, let's talk about it. what What do you eat? What is the thing that you eat? And, I, and when I think about native plants, I think, wow, there's not much that people typically eat. Sunflower seeds. I mean, sunflowers are native to North America, although they're probably not native to your part of North America. Uh, corn is not native to North America. It's a Mexican plant. My, the, a way that I think about this issue is to think of the permaculture zone system, which is where the things you use the most often get planted closest to you. And what that says then is that close to me in the inner part of my yard, I put the plants that I use the most often and then and manage that the most intensively, and then a little bit further away, things that need a little bit less care, and a little further away, things that need very little care, and those are probably native plants. You don't need to irrigate them very much because they're adapted to your conditions. So the zone system in permaculture to me solves the, where do I put my native plants? They go in the outer zones of a yard because you're not harvesting that area, you're not managing it as much. So there's a great place for native plants. It's not an either or, you know, you should never plant native plants or you should only plant native plants. It's put plants where they go. There are places for native plants. There are places for the food producing or fiber producing or timber producing plant or medicinal plants and that's closer to your house. And the natives just go a little bit further away. That, that really answers the question. There's room for them all. It's not an either or. <clears throat> well, Sorry, I'm, I'm swallowing some pie. I, I guess I should try and think of something to say so you could eat more of your pie. All right. I think I'm done. There's, oh, look at I didn't know a pie sliver could get that small. Somebody clearly didn't want to be the person eating the last bit of pie. Yes. I gleefully eat the last piece of pie. This is so good. I had two pieces. And uh, if somebody wants to tell me that that was wrong, I'm okay with that. <laughs> If that was wrong, being wrong is awesome. So, um, let's talk about for a moment Scotch broom. Ah, there's another one. Another poster child of invasive species. Okay. Scott's broom loves disturbance. Scott's broom loves sunshine. So what I love to see, what just drives me nuts and makes me laugh in kind of a sick, sad way, is watching people yanking Scott's broom out of a pasture that they then run animals into or run equipment through. That Scott's broom is just going to come back. You're creating really great conditions for Scott's broom by having open areas of disturbed soil. It loves it. It's patient. The seeds can lie dormant in the soil for many, many years. You're not going to get rid of it that way. The way you get rid of Scott's broom and many other so-called invasive species is by no longer disturbing the soil and shading them out. Scott's broom is a sign that that area wants to have shrubs and then it wants to have trees on it. You're, you're arresting 
interesting succession when you yank out scotch broom to have your pasture or your grasses or whatever it is. If scotch broom is growing, it's almost certainly showing you that that land would really prefer to be forest, and nature is trying to get it to go towards forest with whatever means that it possibly can. Um, I've seen scotch broom. I, I often see scotch broom in two nice orderly rows about six feet apart from one another through areas of, of what's become forest. That's because the pods of scotch broom fit <clears throat> perfectly into the links of caterpillar tractors, little bulldogs. <laughs> You rent a bulldozer from the store, and the last person used it to bulldoze out their scotch broom, and the links are completely full of scotch broom pods. You rent it, drive it through your land, and you're planting scotch broom all along wherever you take the bulldozer. I've seen it many, many times. So that's not a good way to get rid of scotch broom, is to use a little tractor piece of equipment to get rid of it. The way I've successfully gotten rid of scotch broom, if I really wanted to, is by planting trees. And within, by the time that the canopy starts to close or the trees start to cast shade, goodbye to the scotch broom. But the reason scotch broom is there, it's a nitrogen fixer. It's trying to heal the soil. It's trying to break up heavy soil and pump nutrients into it in overgrazed, damaged land. So scotch broom, once again, is one of those plants giving you a message that the land is not being used in a way that's harmonious with nature's preferences, which generally that land wants to be forest and the soil is the nature's using whatever she can to pump more fertility into that soil by bringing in scotch broom. Nature doesn't care what she uses. Nature will use whatever is available. And nature doesn't have any laws about this is native, this is exotic. Nature doesn't care. Nature uses the right plant for the job or what's available to do the job best. And often that's scotch broom. So we should think of scotch broom as an indicator that the soil is not in very good health and it's a solution to that. And if we don't want it in some places, then stop disturbing the soil and plant trees. But overall, it's trying to heal the soil, so just let it go and let the trees come back, and that will take care of it. <clears throat> so perhaps uh, whenever we encounter an invasive issue going on, then then what we see is uh, kind of two things. One is that people have gone in there and screwed things up, and two, nature is trying to fix it, and nature is the world's most ultimate MacGyver. Right. I mean, nature is infinitely patient. You can yank stuff out, and nature will just wait until you're gone or until the funding runs out or whatever, or until the trends change, and nature will just throw it right back in until you change the conditions that created the favorable environment for that exotic plant, that, that plant's going to have a way better chance of coming back than, than anything else you put in there. So change the conditions, and that will bring the land back to what you think it should be, which, like I've said before, is kind of a funny thing that we think we know what should grow there better than nature does. So I thought my MacGyver comment was pretty awesome. I was hoping for more. You know. <laughs> I'm not a big MacGyver fan. <laughs> Nature's the world's most awesome MacGyver, the ultimate MacGyver. That, that's, well, okay. Well, it was funny to me, and mostly I live to entertain myself. I heard the audience laughing there. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, uh, here's, here's one for you. Uh, napweed. Hmm. Allelopathic. Now, I understand I say allelopathic wrong. 
for me to allelopathic, um, but that's okay. All- allelopathic, I hear some people say, but it's allelopathic. Um, I have a dialect. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, um, I'm going to bow out of that one. I don't know much about napweed. So okay, all right. I, I had it whispered in my ear just a moment ago to, to ask you about it. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so, and, uh, see, I mean, actually, let me, let me uh, <laughs> take a real quick path for you here. Um, <clears throat> I was recently presented with the idea of what to do. There's this particular hillside in Missoula that's very popular, and it's it's covered in napweed and a variety of other invasive plants and. Um, they, of course, have been doing a mix of spraying and a variety of other little projects, all of which... Well, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not working at all. Um, and, I mean, they've had some success, like, oh, we, we've improved to 20%. And I'm, my thinking is, is, like, then you stop, and the next year it goes back to whatever right. it was. Yeah, you spray it again. Yep. So, uh, well, and I'm, I'm sure that the herbicide companies come they up with... They love that stuff. They really do. That's you should spray it more every year. Herbicide manufacturers are on many of the... Um, Native plant councils and, and pest plant councils around. They they know repeat customer when they see one. That's a very good. I hadn't thought of that. So uh, when when people who people go out and support native plants, they might actually be uh, in the employ of Monsanto. Yeah, the unwitting dupes. Very very often. I'm I'm really sorry to see that, and it's really ironic that so often native plant enthusiasm and large amounts of pesticide use go hand in hand, herbicide use, but it's very often the case. The, the first step towards getting rid of exotic plants is to spray, and then they come back because you haven't changed the conditions that favor them, so you spray again, and you spray again, and you spray again, and um, it just keeps going on. I've seen that countless times of spraying to get rid of exotic plants, and you're not changing the conditions that favor the exotic plants, so of course they're going to come back faster than the natives will. They're going to choke the natives out because nature favors those. The conditions have changed, so the exotics are now the favorite plant for that area. So uh, on the napweed on the face of Mount Sentinel, <clears throat> which is a common thing to discuss, and I've mentioned in this podcast, I'm sure, several times, um, the, uh, the thing that I proposed, which was not well received, and I think it's because it's, it's just too radical of a change for them, is probably utterly obvious to you, um, which is plant trees. Because nearly every invasive that they're freaking out about, nearly every weed that's some sort of exotic weed, uh, and I love the word noxious, it's like it sounds like it's full of poison. It's hurting me. It's going to rape the women and kill the children. Exactly. Um, but actually what all that noxious means is we at the government are against it. It hurts somebody economically usually, like cattle get sick if they eat it or it's you know crowding out something else that we would prefer to grow there except that we're compacting the soil or doing something else that favors the so-called noxious weed. So plant trees. Plant trees beats nearly every other. All the weeds that are on there, this, this our noxious weed list, nearly everything on the noxious weed list will uh, concede to trees. The, almost all so-called invasive species, not quite all, there are a few exceptions like English ivy and to a lesser extent kudzu, but almost all invasive species, and I'm putting that word in quotes, um, are shade intolerant and they like disturbance. 
disturbance. They like sunlight and they like disturbance. So if you eliminate the sun and you eliminate disturbance, you will almost certainly, well, you will greatly reduce the um, ability of these these plants to establish themselves. And I've seen it happen over and over and over again. We're watching Scotch broom or blackberry or knapweed or any of these others just die, start to die because they're not getting the light they need. They're not getting the disturbance they need. So that's that's what Paul is saying is really true. If you can get trees to grow somewhere, if you're trying to get rid of um, just about any invasive species except for English ivy and perhaps kudzu, trees are going to be your biggest ally in getting rid of them. Shade them out and stop disturbing the soil. Stop pulling stuff. Stop tilling. Stop spraying. Stop spraying. Yep. Right, because when you spray, you're destroying the native soil organisms, and the native soil organisms are the ones that are feeding your native plants. So if you want to kill native plants, a really good way to kill them is to destroy the soil organisms that support them by spraying herbicides. And that kind of leads me to think of another possible solution that, you know, Mount Sentinel uh, has uh, no herd grazing on it that I've ever seen. And um, so a rotational grazing of even cattle would probably um, do a lot to put the uh, invasives into check and bring back a lot of grasses and forbs that are probably probably more for the natives than for the exotics. Yeah, that might be another way to do it. I haven't seen the situation. I uh, don't know exactly what's growing there, but, but it, often a uh, proper grazing pro- program, a rotational grazing program, is a great way to reestablish uh, native or good pasture vegetation. So it could be the greening of Mount Sentinel based upon cattle. And, and I've heard, I don't know, like a thousand times about all the problems that we see here are brought on by overgrazing. And um, uh, and then I recently heard saw a thing by Alan Savory that said overgrazing is a myth. Every time overgrazing has ever been uttered, and there's been thousands of research bits done on overgrazing, how to solve overgrazing, but they all assume that the beginning problem is overgrazing, but there's not one speck of evidence that the problem that they're calling overgrazing was actually caused by overgrazing. Now, I've seen places where people have done overgrazing, and that's where they have one paddock and they keep all the animals in the same paddock all the time, which is not the way ruminants uh, occur in nature. They are going to be a large herd, and they're going to herd to protect themselves from the predators, and they're going to move around. They're going to stay in their group. They're not going to be spread out. With, with most of the paddocks I've seen where there has been an overgrazing issue, it's like one great big area and all the animals wander around willy-nilly, not in a herd because there's no predators safe from predators. But um, uh, And then Alan Savory's work goes into a lot of detail about reversing desertification by proper management of large ruminants, mostly elephants. And, and Toby's got nothing to add to that, right. which is a sign that now I'm just babbling to myself, and I hate this stuff. Well, Caleb, you had some? I think on Waterworks Hill, they are grazing that with sheep, I believe, but they never really did it. It's just free-ranging sheep that that's not going to really solve the problem. I mean, they, they, unless... They're actually not free-ranging. They do have guardian livestock dogs. Right, but they're not actually shifting them through a system of paddock. I mean, basically, they're going through and just eating all the candy, and... 
with that. And I don't really see that being able to solve the weed problem. I think they're on the right track. They just it's that one extra little step, and maybe they'd really, really fix it quick. I'd like to see trees dominantly, and then I, I think that a, a proper paddock shift system would also do a lot mm-hmm. to help things. But I think I think spraying's not any good. I I I, I mean, adding seeds for certain species can be of a help if it's added the right way. But it's like when, when you're talking about napweed, napweed is allelopathic, allelopathic, allelopathic. There you go, very good. Uh, allelopathic. Uh, it, it exudes niacin from its roots, and it, it kind of poisons it. It's a little cheater. It, it, it poisons the other plants around it. So it's, it's a very, it's not a permaculture plant. It's an unfair player. It's, it is one that I would like to see reduced. And But nowadays, there's a lot of easy ways to do that. With with napweed, we've got a lot of good biological control. I was visiting with a fella not long ago where he sells biological control, and um, he rarely has a repeat customer. And the reason is is that, and I've I've seen it where you you introduce napweed or you introduce these insects into a napweed infested area, and it's just like when you grow any kind of monocrop, the bugs come in and wipe it out. So I mean, basically, and this is in places where where napweed has become a monocrop um, effectively. And uh, and so it's like, you know, it, it eventually goes away because of, you know, how nature works. Natives, anything else on natives, Toby? Uh, plant natives first. If natives won't do the job, plant tested exotics. Um, there should never be a need to plant exotics that you know are rampant or exotics whose behavior you haven't tested because we know the behavior of hundreds of thousands of species of plants. There really isn't an issue between native plant lovers and permaculture lovers where our our goal is the same in both in that we're trying to reduce the impact of human beings on ecosystems and to, and to preserve and enhance biodiversity. Uh, we just have somewhat different ideas about how we, we want to go about doing it, but our goals are the same. So let's look for that common ground uh, rather than vilifying each other and having policies such as natives only or I'm going to plant invasive exotics and I don't care what you say. I guess I guess one reason why I wanted to have this native thing it just occurred to me this this talk about native plants <clears throat> is that the people who come to me advocating it are in my experience they've been exceptionally hostile and and it's like and and I and I would know them I would know that these people are not you know Monsanto shells I would know them from other circles and then we start talking about permaculture or something like that or gardening or whatever and then they get going on the native thing and they become very very hostile and um, and so it's kind of like uh, clearly there's some material out there about natives are the only way to fly and, and that kind of thing and and I and I just kind of feel like well like you know like you say Toby there's there's a lot of value to the natives but exclusively natives like if you were to take the face of Mount Sentinel and have a pulling program it would cost millions of dollars to get Mount Sentinel over to natives only and then it would probably cost at least a million dollars a year to maintain it as natives only and it, that doesn't seem like a practical solution to me um, actually I, Mount Sentinel a hundred years ago didn't have nearly as many trees as it did so those might not even be considered native either Right, and I'm, I guess what I'm advocating is, is it's like let's embrace the fact. I mean, my one of the things I keep talking about is give me Mount Sentinel, 
and I'm going to put a jungle there. But of course, no one's going to do that. No one's going to let me there. They're going to keep me out. Um, you know, they're going to say, oh, we got to man- manage, keep it looking pristine. You know, that letter M and all. That's pristine. And um, I'm going to, I love the M. I want to just put a big letter P in trees next to it, you know. And the P would not be for permaculture. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> if you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about plant selection, homesteading, and permaculture all the time. 